Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. Since the early 2000s, Democrats in the Missouri General Assembly have been deep in the minority, often playing a fairly minor role in the legislative process. But thanks to a multitude of factors, legislative Democrats have had much more success recently in the budgetary process and influencing the shape of controversial bills. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid of Springfield talks about why her party is making more legislative inroads and why she's interested in running for governor. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she covers all things state government and state politics for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us in St. Louis, not via Zoom, not via hologram, not in Jefferson City, she is the minority leader for the Missouri House of Representatives. Hi, Crystal Quaid. Welcome back to the show. Great to have you in St. Louis Thank as well. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful studio, so excited to be in it. Our, our studio is the Taj Mahal of Missouri NPR stations. <laughs> That's what some people say, and by some people I mean me. Um, so we're going to be looking a little bit forward. We just went through a, a very um, odd legislative session. Um, what do you think was the biggest wins for Democrats over the last five months or so? You know, Democrats were able to get a lot of money in the budget and a lot of priority put on issues and things that we had been wanting to get funded for a very long time. Um, but I would say over, overarchingly, the biggest win for us was, again, the um, infighting within the Republican supermajority that allowed Democrats to get really strategic in stopping some really bad things from happening. And then also being able to work bipartisanly on things like postpartum care and other issues that Democrats have been working on for a long time. And we're definitely going to be talking about that more in depth as the show goes on. What do you think was the biggest loss for Democrats? Absolutely. The anti-trans healthcare access bills um, that moved, those were not only uh, extremely damaging for uh, government overreach within citizens' health care, but obviously a very emotional topic for a lot of folks that we care about. You know, last year, the legislature was tied up with the congressional maps, the redistricting maps, and it took until the second to last day to pass it. It really caused a lot of friction. This year, no maps, still a lot of friction and not a lot of priorities done for Republicans. Why do you think that is? You know, it's been interesting. I've had seven sessions now, and 
each year we always say, this is the weirdest year yet. <laughs> and then yet again, here we are in another really strange uh, legislative session. And, you know, the, the infighting within the parties last year, obviously, as you mentioned with the maps, but also folks running against each other for primaries, we're seeing a lot of that due to term limits, um, causing a lot of problems. It was surprising for me, honestly, that this session, when it wasn't an election year, that was still very um, evident in the fights that were happening, especially within the Senate. Um, so it's, it's surprising um, that that they weren't able to accomplish as many priorities as they as they said they would. Um, but I think that's a good testament to show that supermajorities don't work. And, you know, I've seen some tweets, one from Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft saying, you know, in a Republican supermajority, as you mentioned, you know, Democrats were celebrating this year. You know, kind of do you feel like that is kind of now the norm with Democrats being able to kind of find those victories, even though they aren't are in a super minority? Absolutely. It's been really great to get to be the the floor leader for the Democrats on the House side and being able to watch our caucus not only grow in numbers, but also um, grow in what we're able to accomplish, whether that's uh, legislation or through the budget process itself. Um, every year it's been more and more. And I think that is a combination of us getting better at our jobs uh, and, uh, like I said, growing in numbers. Uh, but it is being able to strategize and see where those weaknesses are and playing to them. You know, I've now gone and you spoke on the budget. I've gone through two sessions now. You know, House sends over its version of the budget just for the Senate to make changes and additions. And those changes more or less sticking. Do you think this is just going to be the pattern in perpetuity for a while? I think so. You know, my senator, Senator Lincoln Huff, uh, is the Republican chairman on the Senate side uh, dealing with the appropriations. And I have to say, he's really done a great job. Um, and not just uh, for Springfield, obviously, where, where I'm from, but he really does look at this and take input from both sides of the aisle when it comes to crafting the budget. Um, but yeah, year after year, we say in the House side, we're leaving all of this money on the bottom line. We're choosing not to spend it. We're cutting things that are really important to Missourians. And by doing that and handing the bills over to the Senate in that way just allows them to do what they want with it. Yeah, uh, this is kind of the dynamic I, I see. And I think I've mentioned this on other shows. Um, so the House Republicans decide to go their own way and kind of run over the House Democrats. Uh, the Senate decides to go another way. And it's often with a bipartisan agreement between most of the Senate Republicans and almost all the Senate Democrats. So when conference committee rolls around and the House Democrats vote with the Senate Republicans and the and the Senate Democrats, they're going to win every time. Like the Senate's going to win every time under that, which is why like your caucus probably has more wins in the budget than they have in the past. Are House Republicans basically shooting themselves in the foot by not being more collaborative with you? I definitely think so. You know, it's a simple math game. <laughs> and when you look at the numbers, as you said, it's impossible for if we all, if the Democrats, both House and Senate, vote with the Senate Republicans, then it's always going to fall that way. You know, my first session, um, I was on the Budget Committee under uh, Representative Fitzpatrick at the time. Um, and it was much more bipartisan at that point. You know, House Democrats were able to get a lot of things through the budget, and it seems as though each year it's gotten worse and worse. And yeah, to this point, we work very closely with the senators um, on both sides of the aisle to get our priorities through. What do you think were some of the highlights for your party in terms of the, terms of the budget? Oh, there were so many. Um, you know, the big one that we all really worked on was pay raises for in-home care for nurses uh, and, and folks who work with the developmental disability community in, in homes. Um, trying to get them a pay raise, of course, we wanted a little bit better wages, but we were able to get around $16 an hour, I think, is where it's going to come out to. That one was a big win for us and something we've been working on for a very long time. Um, I would say, of course, um, making sure that education is funded, the transportation piece, and trying to get pay raises for teachers, something that we've also been talking about for a long time. Again, 
again, we didn't get enough, but but we did uh, make some headway there as well. And then, you know, there were big projects that our our count, uh, caucus really cared about, making I-70 and 44 priorities um, infrastructure, where we're taking this, you know, one-time opportunity that we have due to the Biden administration to really make serious investments. And I do think that the budget turned out in a way that was um, really looking forward uh, to Missouri and how we can make some serious growth. You know, on the topic of, of funding, you know, library funding, Senator Lauren Arthur, when she was on the show, said that she got more calls about library funding more than anything else this year. Was that similar for you? Absolutely was, yes. Why do you think that is? I think, again, you know, this, this kind of falls in line with the conversation around public education, but public libraries and access to knowledge is something that is core to American values. No matter where you live in Missouri, there are public libraries. I grew up in, in Webster County, and we had a, a public library. It was very small, but it existed, and you could go to it. And that was a resource for, for kids like me who grew up in rural Missouri who didn't necessarily have access to things. And people want to protect that. And when you start talking about taking away access to knowledge, people start to get scared. And this was an attack that bipartisanly, um, just as the senator said, I got phone calls and emails from all over the place. People very, very worried. You know, at least one Republican House floor leader, John Patterson, said he was glad to see that funding return. Overall, do you think this was just an unpopular move by the House that they realized was unpopular by the time it was already over in the Senate? I'm curious, kind of the fact that now Republicans are saying, never mind, it was a good idea that this is back in. You know, it's I, I chuckle because it, there are so many of those, right? The, the DEI language, which we can dive into if you want to as well. Um, where I, I feel like this came from is a real idea. This was not a mistake. This was an elected official who said, I don't want to fund our public libraries. And I think that the the listeners and the citizens of Missouri need to look at that for exactly what it is. Yes, we were able to get the funding back in, but this Republican supermajority is extreme. And they're going to be filing pieces of legislation to take funding away, to take rights away from things that we care about. And they're not being secretive about it. They tried. And they would have been successful if not for the Senate. Now, we have rules from Secretary of State you know, Ashcroft regarding public libraries and rules. Do you believe these rules threaten library funding? Are they wider than even the proposed budget cut? You know, I, I think so. And that's another one uh, when we talk about people contacting us, um, even more so than the defunding, was when those regulation uh, suggestions came out. I have never received more phone calls about anything. Um, and that was not only from, from librarians, but also just folks very confused and, and nervous about what was happening. Um, I do think that this falls into the continued attack on public resources. And um, I think that folks are concerned. I think we should be concerned about what that means for the future of the budget of the libraries and, and the priority of it. And I, I don't think that we're talking about a huge amount of money here. This is like $4.5 million. Um, I guess this gets to a, a, a broader question, like how important is some of that state money, given that like a lot of these libraries are probably funded locally? Like how, why was, the, in other words, why was it so crucial that this money remain in the budget, in your opinion? Yeah, in the scheme of the budget, you know, $50 billion, what we're talking about mm -hmm. is not a lot of money. But when you're in a rural community that does not have a lot of local tax revenue, um, that couple thousand dollars, $10,000 a year can be a very big piece of that budget. Um, that I heard from folks on the, on the front lines would be the difference between keeping doors open seven day, or five days a week to three days a week, or being able to keep two staffers versus one staffer. Um, so while it seems like a small amount of money, it is a really big deal for our small communities. But I think 
this goes back to the bigger conversation of while the, folks might be able to keep their doors open, you know, Greene County, where I'm from, has a fabulous uh, public library system, and, and I don't know that they would have been too impacted. But it falls into this bigger cultural conversation of what we value and what our government is choosing to protect versus choosing to attack. And again, I think um, by defunding the public libraries, it's showing a message to its citizens of where the priorities lie. And before Sarah asks her next question, just as a full disclosure, my wife is a librarian at Washington University, but I don't think she was affected by this. So hence the reason I asked that question. But I, I, in case uh, someone is, is, is wondering whether I'm being biased here, just want to do that disclosure. On the DEI language that you, you just mentioned, you know, it didn't make it on this year's budget. But talking to Representative Doug Ritchie, who was the sponsor of it on the House side, he is not done with this. He's either going, he's, you know, he still believes that this could apply to the budget. It also, he might be pursuing it statutorily. Kind of thoughts on what you're going to be keeping an eye on next year. Yeah, I, I will first say that that debate uh, that completely overtook the debate for the state budget was one of the most frustrating experiences I've had as a lawmaker. You know, the representative filed that as an amendment on every budget bill. And it wasn't until the sixth or seventh time that he offered this, all of them being added to the budget, each individual bill, that Republicans started to actually understand what he was doing. And it was so frustrating because every time the Democrats stood up, we talked about the impact it would have. And then if you notice throughout the debate, folks started voting with the Democrats to try to stop it there towards the end. Um, to answer your question, Sarah, about what we're looking for next year, you know, Again, they're, they're putting it out there. We know what they're doing. We know what their priorities are. They spent so many hours on that individual debate. So we need to look for that, not just in the budget and not just the big um, statutory bill that the representative is going to file, but taking some of those those key words within the, the actual bill that he filed and that language and just keeping our eyes out for that among everything that we're doing. Do you think that the governor's office was trying to whip Republicans to vote against that? We mentioned on a prior show that there was a tweet from Robert Nodell, who's the acting head, I think, of the Department of Social Services, about how his agency was having like an inclusivity day. I don't think that was an accident. Robert Nodell is a very smart political person who used to run campaigns for Republicans. Did you get a sense that Parson did not want this language? And that's why it ended up not making it into the budget. You know, I think this language, like many things that we see from the Republican supermajority, you know, it's this culture war conversation. It's a hot topic. Everybody's talking about it across the country and all the big news outlets. And they filed it. And I think it wasn't until, um, you know, after it had already been done through the House that folks started actually understanding the impact it would have on the state's ability to function. And so I think what I want to say to, you, to answer your question is yes, but I think it took a minute for some Republicans to get there. I think, and I don't want to speak on behalf of the governor or his staff, but I think out the gate, just like the Republicans in the House, it sounded like a good idea. Sure, we hate this. It's a big woke thing that they're doing now. And then when they started to actually understand the impact it would have, then yes, we were seeing um, leaders from the administration like, like Robert Nodell saying things like our entire um, agency would collapse if this was to pass. You mentioned care provider rates is kind of one of the bigger wins. You know, this was reduced actually quite a lot compared to what the Senate version was. And Senate Appropriations Chair Lincoln Huff said this was something he hoped to continue in future budgets to continue those raises for those care providers. The fact that they didn't go with the higher amount initially, should we be expecting maybe smaller budgets in the new near future as kind of, you know, the ARPA money is getting allocated? I'm curious kind of what you think these budgets are going to look like in the next couple of years. 
I think absolutely yes. You know, we're we're looking at a lot of one-time money um, from the federal government uh, through the ARPA dollars that um, is allowing. Missouri to do a lot of the things that we're doing. But when it comes to these pay raises, I'm grateful that the senator is saying that. Um, he's, he's said the same to me. Um, you know, this is a continuous thing that we need to be addressing. And this conversation has been one, folks in the developmental disability community and the, and the employees who support the support staff there have been asking for these raises since I've been in Jefferson City. And so I am grateful to, to know that we're going to continue uh, through this process. But I do, yes, the, the reality is, is that we'll have less money to work with as the federal gov- government spending is done. We'll be right back after this quick break with House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking with House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid. She is a Democrat from the beautiful city of Springfield, which has a large population of very hip young people from what I saw when I was at Lincoln Days. Uh, Sarah, I think you have some questions about child care that I want to throw to you. Sounds good. So within the budget uh, was money for expanded pre-K, but there weren't really child care tax credits or kind of policy around child care. You know, this was something that was in Parsons' platform. Why do you feel other Republicans didn't go along with it? You know, it's a good question. And and I will say, um, you know, folks may recall when the governor put out his priorities at the state of the state, I was very complimentary on a lot of the things that he had put as priorities. Child care access is something that I've been talking about since my very first race. It was the very first bill I filed to deal with child care subsidy access. Um, and so it's something that's deeply important to my district. And I know folks across the entire state. Um To answer your question, you know, it's been interesting in my time as a social worker in the legislature talking about child care and access and who has um, jumped on board with the conversation of it being an issue. Now, definitely COVID has made it become something that is no longer a Democratic talking point or a thing that we're talking about for working families. But now you're seeing small businesses, the Chamber of Commerce, folks all across the board understanding that the, the child care situation that we have in our state is truly a crisis. And so... I think that it didn't cross the finish line, in all honesty, because this is a relatively new thing for the Republicans to care about, quite frankly. And, you know, I I do hope that we will continue um, working together to try to get some stuff done. This child care tax credit that was a priority bill that you know, I, of course, supported and wanted to see cross the finish line is only a, a small piece of the entire conversation to making sure that our families have access to the child care that they need. I mean, okay. So, as somebody who sends one of my three kids to child to a, to a daycare, it seems like there are like three big issues. One, there's not enough childcare providers. Two, the childcare providers that exist have an incredible amount of demand that they can't they can't just let an unlimited amount of kids there. But three, and this is the most important one, which does not have a big solution: the workers are not paid enough, and therefore. Childcare providers cannot recruit enough people to take care of the limited amount of spaces. That seems like a really complex problem that I just don't think state government can fix. Like, it, it, I just don't. It's going to either require, like, massive federal intervention or such a large state component that it would become unsustainable in bad budgetary times. 
I know that's more of a statement rather than a question, but I'd like you to respond yeah. to that. You know, I think you're right in that, and I, I too have paid my, uh, you know, tried to put my kids in, in daycare and have had waiting lists and everything, you know, everybody does. But I think that you're right in that it is not a one-piece solution. State government can't come in and fix this problem. It needs to be, in my mind, a partnership between our local communities, our business communities, state government, federal government, because this truly is a crisis everywhere. And to your point, you know, all three of those, I think you're spot on as as being the issues. I think paying workers is a huge one. Um, But then when you look at the rural parts of the state, it's not just about paying workers. They just simply don't exist. Childcare deserts is truly a thing in our state. It's a thing across the country. And so I would really like to see the legislature try to work more with the business community and with families and local municipalities to come up with some of those solutions. You know, last year in the budget, uh, Representative Betsy Fogel out of Springfield was able to get in some funding, and it was a grant program for um, businesses to be able to apply for to get state funding to put on-site child care for their workers. It was a small, you know, a relatively small grant in the scheme of things, but that's a great idea, a great you know concept of what I'm trying to say, where we should be seeing these partnerships across the board, because a tax credit's just not going to do it. Um, adjusting the subsidy rates and how much folks get will help, but that's also not, it's not a one-size solution for everything. One of the problems that I see, like, these are private entities that are doing childcare primarily. I know that there are some childcares that are public, and that means that, like, st- state aid is is not as cut and dried as, let's say, like special education funding, which primarily goes to public schools. Is that another part of the problem here, too, that this is just a very diffuse network of providers that don't have an obvious nexus to state government? Absolutely. You know, where the state aid is coming from right now, and a lot of folks don't totally understand how this all works, but if you you get state aid as a family um, based on your income and how many kids you have. And the, when the state, when the government is providing that subsidy, it does not go directly to the citizen. It goes to the provider who accepts the state funding. Not every provider does that. Um, and quite frankly, what I'm told, the reason why is because the payments are so delayed. And so you'll have child care providers who, who are taking the federal funding uh, through these families who qualify, but the, the it can be a month to, sometimes I've heard up to six months of a delay for the state making those payments, so folks can't keep those doors open. So then what you see is them no longer accepting the state aid. So yes, I think Think that you are exactly right. Like this, we have not caught up with with society in terms of how we are looking at childcare in our state. We just simply aren't. You know, on the topic of maternal care, uh, you know, the legislature passed not one but two bills containing le- uh, legislation that extends Medicaid coverage for new moms for a full year postpartum. Um, I know this was a priority for years for Democrats and Republicans, some Republicans as well, you know, but they got over the finish line this year. Do you believe this was Democrats' like biggest win outside the budget? I think so, yes, um, because to your point, this is a thing that we have been talking about forever. <laughs> I, I can't remember when we weren't talking about this issue. Um, you know, Medicaid expansion, of course, one of the reasons that I originally wanted to run for office and many of my colleagues because we had not expanded Medicaid in our state, um, but that didn't cover new moms. And this is such an important piece of the conversation for family success um, and in a state that we like to tout family values, uh, of course, making sure that our moms are healthy is number should be number one one priority. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm so thrilled that we were able to get it done and grateful that we were able to find bipartisan support in it. 
Yeah, something that was stripped of that bill was what was called a poison pill, basically, which was language that didn't say the words abortion, but pretty much meant that if you had gotten an abortion, you would not be able to qualify for these benefits for this extra coverage. Thoughts on the ability of the House to be able to strip that from the Senate side and get two versions without the language through? Yeah, I think that that was a great showing um, on just the concept of, again, folks throwing language out that sounds good for political sound bites, but in when they actually understand the impact it would have on the legislation, them saying, oops, never mind, kind of similar to DEI in my, my mind. And that was exactly what this was. When folks understood ex- how that would impact the implementation of this legislation that folks bipartisanly wanted to get done, I, I believe that's why it came off. And, you know, this is, I've asked you this before, but, you know, this is the first year, first session, post-op decision, post the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Do you feel like it's a coincidence that this is the year that the session was able to get it done? Absolutely not. Um, you know, we have seen across the state, and and I can attest to this, uh, knocking all the doors that we did in the election cycle, um, that Missouri that Missouri is too extreme when it comes to access to health care. Um, regardless of political ideology, I had so many folks when I knocked their doors say that the number one issue for them that election year was the fact that abortion was no longer accessible in our state. Um, and I think the Republicans know that. They see the same polling that I see, and they know that folks are frustrated and that you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth and say that you support families while not providing them access to planning and not providing access to the things that they need to be successful. And so not only around um, this topic, but we also saw uh, several bills filed that were dealing with an array of things that support working families that Democrats have been championing for a long time. So one of the things that was notable at uh, your counterpart, House Speaker Dean Plocker's press conference, was he said very flatly, by not passing a ballot item to raise the threshold for constitutional amendment from a simple majority to, in this case, 57 percent, Senate Republicans were essentially guaranteeing the legalization of abortion, which I'm not trying to. Okay, yeah, I am trying to brag here. I wrote about that story in November of last year. It was pretty obvious, like, there was a connection between those two. I was frankly surprised, though, that Plocker said that explicitly because a lot of Republicans have been trying to downplay that connection. Were, Were you also surprised by that? No. <laughs> um, you know, I think I said at that at the press conference that he said the quiet part out loud. You know, what what has been really quite amazing to watch over the past few years is with these extremes going on around culture war issues amongst the Republicans who are running against each other for the next election cycle. You know, we could go on and on about that. What we've also seen over the years is quite frankly, the audacity to say such such blatant things without ramifications. Um, And so, no, I wasn't surprised he said it because we knew all along that's exactly what they were doing. And at least I would say at least he's being honest to folks now. Well, let's before we get to the next topic, I do want to talk about that hype. It's still a hypothetical abortion initiative. Like there have been like and I'm reading from the Missouri Independent now, there were like 11 versions of a proposal that was submitted. But some of them are pretty vague. They talk about the there has to be compelling governmental interest for an abortion restriction to be put in place. And others like regulate after fetal viability, which is could be after 24 weeks of pregnancy. Um, do you think that those types of things would actually pass in Missouri? Like, I understand that there's a lot of fervency among Democrats to bring legal abortion back. 
But I could see if you don't put any restrictions on it, like there are going to be some voters who are going to be like, absolutely not. Like we want some restrictions around this. What, what's your thought about that? Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with your take on that. You know, Missouri tends to be a uh, middle of the road, common ground state. And, and, you know, we've got folks both left and right of every issue that exists. And um, but we but we know that folks are looking for something that that is supportive of their access. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I knocked a lot of doors of Republicans down in Springfield. That's how I have to win my elections. And folks would say to me all the time that this is just government gone too far. Um, so what the language looks like, you know, there, there are court cases happening right now um, that we may end up seeing the courts actually writing what the language is, depending on how this all plays out. Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see which ballot language actually makes it if they gather the signatures and if it's on uh, the ballot at all. Or if another group puts forth another proposal, which honestly I've heard is coming, and it may be significantly more modest than that, which will cause another layer to that. But let's move on to uh, transgender health care. Andrew Bailey has rescinded his rule that put barriers on accessing gender-affirming care for both trans kids and adults. His reasoning was that it was a stopgap until the legislature acted on a gender-affirming care ban for minors. And it also included banning the state from paying for Medicaid and uh, incarcerated people, which affects adults. What do you make of the attorney general's uh, rationale for pulling the rule? You know, it, the whole thing around Attorney General Bailey's actions around this issue has just been wild to watch, to be honest with you. Um, he when he initially said he was going to do this, it then was several weeks before we actually saw the rule change submitted. Um, and it was very obvious from the get-go that this was a political move for him to try to win the primary that is in front of him. Um, he totally overstepped his authority by trying to legislate through this rule. Um, and I believe that he rescinded it because he knew he was going to lose. Um, this obviously wasn't about the legislative um, passage of the bill because the legislative bill that passed was only to minors. It was restrictive. It had a grandfather clause, a sunset clause, et cetera. And what the attorney general was trying to do was far beyond the scope of what the legislation that actually passed does. Um, And so I don't believe that it was about what they passed. I think it was that he knew he was going to lose in court. Now, I've asked a bunch of Republicans and Democrats, do you think that legislators will try to push bills that are similar to what the attorney general uh, tried to do? And some of the Republicans I've talked to, including high-level leaders like Caleb Brown, say, no, they're not interested in doing that. Some say, maybe, like Senator Bill Igle told me. And a lot of Democrats just flatly expect adults to be next. And I guess the reason why, and also trans-Missourians I've talked to believe the reason why this is an inevitability is the reason why this particular issue about transgender minors came to the forefront is You had a lot of conservative media outlets and social media influencers amplifying a lot of negative coverage about gender-affirming care for minors. That then was ingested by a lot of Republican voters, and those Republican voters demanded action from the Republican legislators. So how hard is it to believe that that same thing won't happen with transgender adults? And if that does happen, what do Democrats do to counteract that? Um, Because, yeah, you mentioned that there were some exceptions in the gender-affirming care ban for minors, but it still passed. And it's still going to affect people in what they feel is a negative way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I this is yet another culture war conversation that we know is going to be around until the next 
population or thing that they target. Um, last year it was CRT. Um, you know, <laughs> we could go on and on about the different national culture wars, as you said, based on on these news outlets and social media influencers um, of what that cookie cutter legislation is that is going to be brought forward by Republican supermajorities across the country. Um, this year, it was attacking a very, very small group of very vulnerable people in our state. Um, I do expect more to be filed. Um, will they be priorities of, of the Republican supermajority? I can't say. You know, I know that there were a lot of um, conversations that were had this year about not coming back to it next year. Um, for Democrats, you know, the the end legislation and the impact it has on families is is truly devastating. But also a piece of that conversation for us was the devastation and trauma that these families were having to go through day after day after day, coming up, sometimes coming up and testifying multiple days a week, um, only to be shut out from from meetings with the Speaker of the House and to to be told that their voices didn't matter. And it was a really trying experience that I can't even verbalize how detrimental. And, you know, when studies show that when governments are having these discussions, the increase of um, suicidal ideation increases exponentially, especially among kids. And so to answer your question about, like, what Democrats are looking at towards next year, I definitely expect this to come back. I, I do. My biggest priority is going to be trying to stop the legislation and trying to protect the families in the process. Now we're going to do just kind of a general politics at the end of it. You know, at the end of session, you said all of these bills from Republicans showed an agenda that didn't reflect the governor's priorities. And this wasn't during an election year. What should we expect from an election year next session? You know, it's a, a great question and one that we are asking the, the very same Um I expect it to get more partisan. I expect there to be just as much, if not more, dysfunction next session. You know, there were only 41, I believe, policy bills passed this year, not counting the appropriations, um, which outside of COVID is one of the lowest in recent history. I think COVID was around 30 or 31 bills. And so I, I can't even imagine how dysfunctional it's going to be next year when we have all of these folks running against each other for the next office. What do you think the prospects for your, you, you will be termed out, and we will ask about your next step in the last couple of questions. What do you think the prospects are for House and Senate Democrats um, to gain ground in the legislature next year? You always say like, oh, we're going to do great. And then, you know, your caucus did great in 2022, but other years you, you haven't done that well. What's, what's kind of your thought at this early juncture? Yeah, I am actually very excited about the 2024 election season and our possibility of gaining seats. You know, um, we've when last year, to, to your point, we have picked up seats. So Springfield now has three elected Democrats when it was just me down there. Um, Boone County now has four. We've got Clay Platt is doing great. Um, and so we've been able to, to move the margins. But even in the seats that we didn't win last election cycle, we had several that were lost by just a couple hundred votes. And so just simply going into looking at the math of where these districts are, we have a good 10 to 15 House seats right now that are um, potential targets where we think that we have a really good chance of winning. You add that to the conversation of a presidential year and maybe having abortion on the ballot. We'll have the minimum wage increase on the ballot. There's going to be a lot of issues that bring folks out to the polls. Um, and I really do think that we have a big opportunity. Minimum wage increase. Did you just let out some news there? Uh, folks are collecting signatures right now. Uh, so that is folks are out and about. Well, that is common when there is a major election. Okay, so I mentioned uh, your future plans. You said at a press conference a number of weeks ago that you were absolutely considering running for governor. Your party has literally nobody, whereas the Republicans have three people. 
what it what is going to first of all why are you interested in running for governor and what is kind of your timeline to make a formal decision on that well, the first thing I'll say is, while nobody's announced yet, the Democrats have a whole lot of people who who are a part of our bench who would be amazing elected leaders across the state. Um, and, you know, but the reality is, is that Missouri is, uh, we haven't done amazingly in statewide elections, and folks know that. And so it is important when we're looking at folks' future uh, that it, the timing is right and all of those things. But I definitely, I, I don't like that notion that, that there uh, is no bench here, because we have great folks who, who would be capable. But um, to, to answer your question, you know, it is of interest to me for a lot of reasons. One, when I first became elected, you know, I, I never wanted to be floor leader. I just wanted to be a state rep. And then my colleagues asked me to take on that role. And I um, have really enjoyed my time doing it. And there's been a lot of benefit to me and the party and the, the work that we've done. But when I look at other offices, the governor's office really is a place where we can make tremendous difference to help the people of Missouri. Governing the agencies and how they implement policy um, and directing where those monies are spent and, and how we are actually providing services to our citizens is huge. And so when I think about just personally where what position would I want to do the most good from, it is, of course, that one. Now, 2024, why would I consider it now? Um, and the honest answer is we can't let up in our state. I've spent the past six years in the state house as, as the floor leader um, you know, try, we have been rebuilding the House Democratic Campaign Committee, building infrastructure, flipping seats, making sure that folks on the ground know what's going on, and in re, you know, reactivating conversations with voters and trying to really grow uh, the Missouri Democratic Party. 2024 is so important to continuing to move that forward. But we also, again, as we've mentioned, some of these initiative petitions and the things that are happening, the Republicans have gotten so extreme in Jefferson City. Whether they believe it or not, they're, the policies that they're passing and the things that they're saying, defunding public libraries, saying diversity, equity, and inclusion is a bad thing, going after uh, folks' freedoms in their doctor's office left and right, these are serious issues that are impacting Missourians, and folks are leaving our state instead of coming to our state. So no matter who runs in 2024, we need to be looking at this as a, a really serious time that we cannot go anything less than 110%. And before I ask my last question, any timeline to make a decision? Yes, I will have a decision soon. I, I am definitely hoping midsummer. Okay, so I ask this question to every Democrat who wants to run for statewide office, and I've almost been a broken record, but I think it's it's critical. If Demo the reason why Democrats are losing statewide offices is you're doing terrible in rural counties, and you've lost a ton of ground in what I classify as suburban exurban counties, and you may have the best platform in the world. You may raise thirty million dollars. If you're getting 20% in rural areas and you're losing Jeffco by 15, you're going to lose to Jay Ashcroft, Mike Keogh, or Bill Bill Eigel. I'm sure you know that. And I asked, like, what do you do to re resurrect that coalition? There's not an easy answer to that. But, like, how are you going to go into a type of race with that pretty – difficult geographical reality ahead of you. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that question. And I think that's a question for Democrats, not just interested in running statewide, but just us as a party. How do we get out of the situation we're in in our state? And I'm a firm believer in bottom up campaigning. You know, we have um, there are districts that Democrats don't ever run in. 
and folks say, well, why would we? Because there's absolutely no chance of winning. Sometimes we have to redefine what it means to win. A win in a rural district, uh, of course, we would love to flip a seat red to blue. But I think a win is also ter- changing the Democratic turnout from 23% to 30%, right? And so when we're looking at statewide offices or whether it's a ballot initiative or something that we care about, it's not necessarily about winning Joplin, but we got to get 37%, you know, or, or whatever that threshold is. And so when we look at these statewide campaigns, we, it has to be a both-and conversation. We have to turn out the vote in the cities because the, the, the turnout here is just catastrophic. We need to be registering new voters because we have almost a million unregistered folks who could be registered, about 350,000 of them people of color that was the last number I heard. And then we've got to, we have to show up in rural Missouri. We absolutely do. And we have to run candidates locally that folks know that prioritize those local issues, not necessarily, again, to flip it to be a blue seat, but to slowly break chip away at those numbers, and that helps statewide candidates. We'll be talking perhaps more about uh, your foray into statewide offices at a later time, but thank you so much for coming to St. Louis. It's always a pleasure to talk with you uh, and about legislative politics primarily. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. Uh, Leader Quaid, what is the best way to find you on social media or anywhere else you want to be found? Yeah, well, I have a website. It's just crystalquaid.com. That's Q-U-A-D-E. Of course, I am on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. uh, So I'm on all the platforms. Very good. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.